heavy breather and a libertarian walk into a bar. Oh my gosh. With with an ally with an acoustic guitar. With an ally with an acoustic guitar playing Wonderwall. <laughs> the question is simply like who do you run from first? I know, right? And they're the only people at the bar. It's like you, you're at the bar trying to enjoy yourself on like a Wednesday. And then those three people walk in. What is the first thing you do? You run from the one that does CrossFit. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe, and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you are alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. Speaking of shows, just yesterday we had a very good time talking with filmmaker, or I should say I had a very good time talking with filmmaker, punk rocker, Bill Cody, about his life in music, film, and politics. That show is part of a new series we're doing called Pop Life, where I'll be speaking about more pop culture subjects, telling stories, and of course, like any good TIR show, uh, we discuss the unhoused on that one. Uh, also check the show we did Tuesday with longtime housing advocate Randy Shaw, discussing what the left gets right and wrong about housing. That said, if you enjoy what we do here at TIR and don't want to make the yearly or monthly commitment, you can show your support with revolutionary merch. And, you know, I think the faceless voice of reason, M2 Sant, can do a better job at explaining this than I. Please welcome M2 Sant. Hello, hello. So good to be here, as always. But uh, right now, we're talking about merch. Oh! Oh! Look at oh. that! Look at that! Hey, get your t-shirts, get your mugs, represent with a mouse pad at work. Let them know where you stand. Start a conversation with an Anglo pessimism t-shirt. It matches your terms. Start <laughs> like that shirt is the ultimate conversation starter. You can discuss your feelings with your fellow Anglo's uh, uh, all, all around your pessimism. 
there you go. <laughs> and then wear a hat with symbols people don't understand. Yeah, snapbacks, definitely a conversation piece. Why is that flag upside down? You and better have just, an answer. Shrug, yeah, just shrug your shoulders and just walk away. Oh. Uh-huh. Well, a good enough answer as any. Oh. Oh. Hey. I love this one. You know who has that one that wears it all the time? Who? Marcus. Marcus. Marcus has the last zip up of that one that Bitter Lake took on tour. We and then there's the Wu-Tang. The Wu-Tang. Uh, killer B. The killer Way. Yeah, Killer Bees. Wu-Tang, B, Wu-Tang. Killer Bees on the Swarm. Mm-hmm. And the classic black and ah, white. The classic, the silver and black, which, you know, I was very hard for me to do because those are Raiders colors. <sighs> Spare me your California nonsense. Let's get back to my coast. I hate the Raiders. Dang. Thanks for the children. Would, is kidding. YouTube going to see this as a gang sign? Um, Probably not. I think they're on board with the Wu. <laughs> <laughs> How much would that suck if they were on board with Wu-Tang and not like anything else we do on the show? We, every show gets like... Ben Burgess does a show here on Sundays, which is a philosophy show. It is literally the tamest thing that we do. And even that one gets flagged. It's like, hey, it's inappropriate. Is it what really? The They're talking about yeah. Nietzsche. Yeah! Unbelievable. His philosophy show gets tagged. Talking about Hume. Dude, Hume is too much for, for YouTube. Speaking of Hume, let's bring in. <laughs> okay. Speaking of mutton. Did you, did you like okay. that? Okay. Speaking of philosophers, maybe the greatest black philosopher of our internet time. You may know him as the man of the Mau Mau Hour. I know him as the black Hume. Please welcome Pascal Robert. <laughs> Peace. peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. Relax with all that. Relax. <laughs> Relax with all of that. I was talking with a fan of the show today. He, this person had some things he wanted to discuss with me. Before he got off the call, he said, please let Pascal know he's still dope. Oh, Thank you. I'm honored. So just just so you know, even when I see people and and they want to talk to me, they got to bring your black ass into it. (laughs) Here we go. JB says, uh, how about Black Rousseau? The Black Rousseau, the Black Mm -hmm. Hume, all of these uh, enlightened thinkers, Hume, Rousseau. Mm -hmm. That's not your bag? I don't know. Pascal and Rousseau, passionate, passionate men. Passionate, passionate. Yeah. I guess. Yes. <laughs> I, like to think of Pascal as, I like to think of Pascal as the black Sonny Crockett. Wow. <laughs> and I'm it's the like, Philip uh, Michael Thomas with all the chest. You know what it is? Around. We're like uh, Miami Vice. Yeah, we're Miami Vice, but you're Sonny Crockett, and then I'm Philip Michael Thomas. He's the oh, name really? of the character, but you're the, the name the of the actor. <laughs> Good job. Good job. What was Philip Michael Thomas's character's name? It was like Black Tibbs. Guy. You said it was Tibbs? 
Is that was what it Tim? was? You were over there getting him confused with Sidney Poitier. I don't know. And they call him Mr. Tibbs. <laughs> right in the middle of a drug bust. Tubbs, I'm sorry, Tubbs. I'm Tubbs. <laughs> Can you imagine him doing a Sidney Poitier impersonation in the middle of a drug bust? Oh, my God. Miami Vice made selling tubs. drugs look so cool. I don't care what anybody says. The wardrobe was off the chain. Oh, my goodness. Ricardo Tubbs was his name. His name was Ricardo Tubbs? Yep, and he's an ex-NYPD officer from the Bronx who came to Miami seeking personal revenge against the person who killed his brother, Raphael Tubbs. Okay. So he was like a black Puerto Rican with S-curl came in down. Serious S-curl. Serious S-curl. They wanted to explain the hair, and so they gave him Latinx first name. Like Sammy Davis Jr., I think our guest, I think, I think Miami Vice might be before her time because I think she just Googled who the hell we're talking about. <laughs> I think I can see her in the virtual green room going like, I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. Miami Miami Vice. She's that? like, is this BT? She's like, what <laughs> <laughs> the hell is going on? <laughs> Dr. Eric me. knows. He's getting in his mind. He, right now, he's just hearing do, 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 do. <laughs> Whenever you heard that music and you saw them ride in the car and not talking, and like the, I was like, oh, it's about to go down. Ridiculous show. <laughs> I'm just getting ready because this show. Oof. Yeah. I was trying to. I was writing the script. Toussaint goes. Uh, so if you guys don't know, Toussaint, you know, picks a lot of these shows. These are these are all her ideas. So if you hate them. Make sure you let her know. Oh, that's hey. that's, that, is, that is a real cop out, man. If you hate them, <laughs> keep it to yourself. Suppress <laughs> it until it becomes a festering mental illness. Like the rest of us. They Don't want to hear it. I did not pick Miami Vice. <laughs> no, no. Someone says, oh, have AI generate the show topics. <laughs> no. MT said, hey, let's do a show about this thing that's definitely going to get us demonetized. And I was like, yeah. uh, no. And then uh, she said it again. And then it was on the third time that I was like, yes. That's the not true. The people need to know. The people demand Doubleday and Osgood. <laughs> I like that. I like that. What you talking about? Why do we keep ignoring COVID? Many people feel like the mishandling of COVID was a major factor in Trump losing the 2020 presidential election to Joe Biden. Biden, the sensible, longtime politician, would listen to science and get the pandemic under control. Well, the question remains, are we back to normal? The death toll under Biden hasn't really slowed, but the news coverage has. No more does democracy now start the day with the daily COVID death toll. Wearing a mask is not just optional, but seen as the behavior of the overly paranoid. Should we still be cautious? As our guest writes about in one of her more recent Substack entries, the safety protocols at the Davos retreat of the elite were extremely high. Using safety measures we don't have for the general public for fear of having a super spreader event. So the question remains, are we in the post-pandemic era 
Or are we running around like children, covering our eyes, believing that if we can't see it, it doesn't exist? Let's discuss. Please welcome, coming all the way live from a secret bunker somewhere in the East Coast, journalist Julia Doubleday. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, sorry about the old people uh, banter. Early on. <laughs> I vaguely know about Miami Vice. You know, it's a thing. I mean, do you know about that horrible movie with Jamie Foxx, or do you know about that's the magic yeah, power? that's the one I know yeah. about. Mm, yeah. If oh you don't God. know <laughs> Philip Michael Thomas's Taco Meat Chest Tear and Jerry Curl, then you don't know Miami Vice. <laughs> Speaking of taco meat. Our favorite doctor. <laughs> so happy to see this man again and give him a great big hug in uh, New York City. Please welcome everyone's favorite TV doctor. And now I can say that, and it's true, because he's always on TV with someone. Dr. Eric Osgood. Hey, Dr. Nice Eric. to see everybody. Thank you for uh, coming out. We had fun. There's some pictures. Yes. You know, a couple of people came up to me and said that they, you know, really enjoyed, you know, the previous segments I was on, on your show. And I felt so cool. And that does not happen very often. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Did you hear that, Pascal? I'm glad you got the chance to feel good. Dr. Osgood, feel good. <laughs> <laughs> well. Oh, now that we've got all that out of the way, guys, why don't we talk about long pandemic symptoms? Has the right been able to co-opt this discussion as a vaccine-related issue? Also, why is this still a politically polarizing issue? You want me to start or, or you Yeah, go there? for it. I'm very eager to hear what you have to say, and then I'm happy to jump in. Well, if we're going to talk about long COVID... Um, I think the first thing we need to unpack is long COVID is real. Uh, I think that a lot of people are under the impression that long COVID is just this like vague set of symptoms, like maybe you're fatigued or maybe you um, forget your keys sometimes. And that's the way that has really been presented to us in the, in the press. Um, but recently a study from the Brookings Institute, which you guys will know is like a very conservative think tank, uh, found that nearly 20 million people are suffering from long COVID and about 4 million of those are permanently out of the workforce because they're disabled long term. And they're not reporting on this because they care about human beings. They're reporting on this because they're getting concerned about the impact on the workforce. Um, it's just not believable that millions and millions of people are suddenly simultaneously losing their minds and imagining they have a disease. Uh, that's not a realistic explanation for what's happening. And it's certainly not a more realistic explanation than there's a novel virus and we don't fully understand the impacts of it, which I don't know why that's so hard for people to accept other than we've had two years, two long years of propaganda that COVID is the flu. And we can get into why that's very much not the case, but I'll hand it over to you, Dr. Eric. Sure. Um, I really appreciate your comments there. I have been working with patients with this syndrome now. Uh-oh. Are you only seeing my forehead or is that just my screen? <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I've been working with patients with this syndrome and doing research into this syndrome for the past couple of years now. And 
it is absolutely true that it is real. And I think another thing that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle is that this is not unprecedented or completely novel in that we already know that pathogens such as viruses can do this. Uh, I think we're seeing it at an extremely sort of accelerated um, rate. And it's more on the forefront because it's a pandemic. Pandemic, it's affecting many people. We're paying close attention to it. But also, this seems to be a virus that's particularly good at doing this. And despite what you might read in you know, more libertarian-leaning outlets or in something like the New Republic, unfortunately, despite what you might read um, in sources like that, there is absolutely very high-quality data, information, scientific scientific evidence that's built that's been building over the last couple of years and we understand pretty well uh, at this point why this syndrome occurs um and you know i don't want to get too into the weeds but um there are sort of conflicting primary drivers of, of, what, of what predominantly drives these symptoms in people but we have a very good idea of at least what some of the clinical subtypes of this of this syndrome this disease are and finally we're starting to see an acceleration launch of therapeutic clinical trials to try to actually demonstrate um, what might be able to benefit some of these patients however it's very unlikely that any time in the near future there's going to be anything close to a cure or even a very highly efficacious treatment but uh, and so and so I mean the primary thing that you want to do to mitigate your risk of, of ending up with this syndrome is trying not to get the virus, particularly not numerous times over and over and over again. And because the new variants are becoming more contagious and we are increasingly dropping the measures that we're taking to try to mitigate spread, we're seeing upticks. And for a little while, we were getting little droughts where we weren't really seeing too much more influx of patients into our long COVID clinics. But more recently, there's been another huge uptick in, in new patients presenting with, with these post-acute sequelae. And then people who had had it previously, gotten a bit better, were doing well, now presenting with re-exacerbations, you know, ostensibly because they got reinfected again. And, um, so that, that's a big problem. And I think, you know, there's always going to be this sort of, it, it, it's very reminiscent to me of the whole merchants of doubt phenomenon when there's there's always people who are going to be skilled at doing scientific propaganda, whether it's that tobacco smoke doesn't cause cancer or, you know, climate change denial. There's always going to be clever scientific jargon to try to obscure um, you know, certain realities when they're economically uh, inconvenient to, to those who will power. And that's what a lot of this uh, long, uh, you know, what uh, uh, denialism to me reeks of and kind of reminds me of it. It's, it's pretty unfortunate. Do you think that any of the actual uh, skepticism that is being brought forth by not only elements of those on the right, but even some segments of the left is due to the inability of the actual healthcare industry to effectively have communicated with the public about the precautions of what needed to be done to protect from COVID and even some of the, the statements that were being made about the vaccines that were kind of questioned, questionable in terms of their veracity led to a, a pretty much an era, an, an atmosphere of distrust. Do you think that was part of the problem? I think that's a big part of it. And it's, it's interesting because the sort of dynamics, especially if you're kind of paying attention to some of the online Twitter type banter within the medical and scientific community, it's like earlier on you had this sort of like the COVIDians and the COVIDians. You know, you had the people who were telling people that, you know, just take vitamin D or 
you know, you're not at risk unless you're elderly and immunocompromised or take hydroxychloroquine or whatever else. Don't get vaccinated X, Y, Z type people. And they had the people and, you know, that typically went hand in hand with like anti-mask sentiment. And then you had the people who were like, yeah, masks are good. Vaccines are good. You know, there are treatments that were potentially promising early on, but have shown to be non, you know, efficacious. Um, and that was sort of like the, the split that you would see. And now it's, it's gotten a bit more complicated because now within the people who are not really conspiratorial necessarily, or sort of pushing blatantly anti-science things, there's sort of a rift there where you have a faction that's like, Hey, look, these vaccines work so well that, and, and, you know, long COVID's not a real thing. We don't think it's just one of these sort of functional disorders. And, you know, as long as you're vaccinated up to the uh, up to the current recommendations, you're at such low risk of severe disease that, hey, like the vaccine's enough. We don't need additional measures of protection. We should be dropping mass mandates. Everything should go back to normal. And we're all kind of fine. Oh, oh deep state. Oh. The deep state got him. That was. They got him. They got um, him. Well, if I can just jump on to what he was saying, I mean, the the reality is the Biden administration has the exact same goals as the Trump administration had, which is to get everyone back to normal, to get capitalism, the wheels of the machine turning, and to get everyone to stop complaining to them. So when you advance, whether you're advancing this idea that the vaccine has has fixed all of our problems, even though 500 to 600 people are dying daily and the majority of them are vaccinated, whether you're advancing that or whether you're advancing anti-vaccine conspiracy, that the vaccine is killing all these people, both of those narratives are convenient to the state. As leftists, you should be questioning when your narrative is convenient to the state. What do I mean by that? I mean, the state does not have to intervene or do shit if it's the vaccine or if the vaccine is perfect. Neither of those things are true. But when you go around advancing that, oh, people are just being harmed by the vaccine, it's not COVID, it couldn't possibly be this novel disease that's killed millions and millions of people that's harming us. When you advance that, you're giving Biden a free, a free pass. So I don't like to give this administration a free pass for the millions of deaths. I mean, at this point, we've seen over 700,000 deaths on his watch and millions of people disabled on his watch. And you have people on the left who are either saying that's no big deal or even who are turning into anti-vaxxers. And like, as leftists, we need to question these narratives and question why we're not challenging the state and asking them to actually address this problem, which is what we elected them to do. Well, let me ask you this question. And I ask this to everybody here. And, uh, does it feel like when we talk about science, science exists and, and Dr. Eric, I would love to get your, you know, opinion on this and your feeling on this we're constantly experimenting to 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 see what we're saying is true but it feels like science lives in this world of absolutes so i remember early on it was well wearing a mask is silly because you have to have a certain type of mask and if you don't have the certain type of mask then you're wasting your time and then it was oh, everyone has to have an N95, then no, you just need some sort of mask covering, then it's the vaccine's effective, no, the vaccine's kind of effective, now we have a new a new virus. So it feels like people don't trust science because the way we view science from kind of a lay person's perspective is once a scientist says it, then it's an absolute truth, there's no wavering, we never experiment to see, to test these theories. Um, you're a doctor. You deal with this every day. I've had personal conversations with you about this. But 
how is it for someone trying to treat this when someone comes in that's either denying it or um, don't, they don't trust you? Yeah. How do you build trust in this in this environment? That that's a fantastic question, um, and it's something I have spent a lot of time talking about. I'm sorry, I don't know what happened with me on my stream. I got dropped earlier in the middle of my sentence. I apologize. Um, you know, building trust with patients, especially, I mean, to answer the kind of the first part of your question, I think a lot of mainstream media really sort of polarizes science and turns it into the system of absolutes because it always becomes about sort of demonizing the other. And so you're going to have Rachel Maddow basically telling you if you don't believe X, Y, Z, what the current consensus is based on, you know, what, what's just been put out here, you know, you're one of those deplorable bad people. And then you're going to have Tucker Carlson on the other end telling you, that, you know, if you believe what, you know, Anthony Fauci is telling you, then you're some kind of sucker. It's like this, it's it's become just all sort of polemics. When the reality is like scientific consensus changes and it shifts. And the idea is that we're supposed to be basing what we say off of the current best evidence that we have and try to build some kind of scientific consensus. And then that turns into public health communication where you have to try to appropriately communicate that. And as new information rolls in, do our best to update that. And unfortunately, when science is communicated so frequently in this sort of polemic sort of way, it becomes hard to do that, especially when you are imposing things on people, when you're imposing things like restrictions or telling people they have to wear a mask or that they can't go and dine in their restaurant, whatever it is, their people are going to kind of become understand, understandably to some respects sort of reactionary about that. And so I think when we, you know, to build trust, we have to be very straightforward with people with what we know how certain we know, how certain we are in what we know and then as we get new information that sometimes overrides what we thought before or often situations change and evolve we have to be able to sort of update that in a manner that's sort of non-judgmental and that just sort of plainly states what we know what we understand why we think it and be straightforward when we maybe either got it wrong or it's just not up to date something changes now when you're dealing with people who are un, you know non-trustful and that i actually spent a lot of time like early mid even late 2021 doing consults with people who were really afraid to get the vaccine um they were consuming a lot of media particularly social media that was feeding them a lot of very poor information, but they were very untrustworthy of either their own doctors or, you know, sort of mainstream scientific communication just because of everything they were reading. And they wanted to speak to somebody that would actually spend a little bit of time dispelling some of their fears and um, helping them come to that decision. So a lot of people I know they get sort of painted into this bad guy anti-vax box. There are a lot of people though that they wanted to do the right thing for themselves and for their families, their kids, but they need a little bit of a, a, their hand held and they, they needed uh, somebody to sit down and explain it to them in a non-judgmental way um, and really just show kind of empathy and genuine concern for the person um, and be able to do that in, in a manner that's not condescending and not judgmental. And that I think is the biggest problem. I think that's where a lot of people who otherwise do really good work when it comes to scientific and medical communication fail because they do get very judgy, very sort of condescending and mocking. Um, and I think that what, what that ends up doing is you take people who are very prone either to sort of conspiratorial content or just people who want to sort of play into their fears. And you're really, uh, and I've said this on multiple occasions, you're really driving those people into the arms of people like that. We, we know who those people are. And I think 
whether we're talking people on the left and the way that we communicate or some of the people that are the more sort of prominent voices um, in, in sort of what I would call the pro-science movement, I think need to get a little bit better um, about about the about being a bit non-judgmental with actual people with patients. I understand um, kind of going after people that are the purveyors of misinformation because they're getting people killed. They a lot of times don't know what they're talking about. They're doing absolute nonsense content, but they are effective enough in the way they communicate that they're actually causing people to change be, their behaviors and uh, to act in ways that are gonna get them hurt, potentially killed or sort of long-term disabled. I don't have any patience for that. I'm not gonna pull any punches with people that do that kind of stuff. Uh, but with you know, with actual patients uh, and, and members of the public that have, in my opinion, understandable fears and reservations and uh, you know, but and, and doubts and to some degree skepticism of sort of scientific mainstream communication, I just think being non-judgmental and uh, and understanding and patient are are the most important things that you can do. One of the questions I want to ask you though is that when we have a privatized healthcare system. We have corporations and companies that produce things like the vaccine that are also so also also demonstrating conflicts of interest because of other investments that they may have. Yeah. How exactly is it possible for even a rational thinking citizen to have any kind of trust whatsoever when we have a history of these kind of corporations in a kind mm -hmm. of capitalist healthcare system being not only dangerous but working towards the complete opposite interest of the body politic? So is right. it actually natural? that in a society where we have these type of for-profit mechanisms that drive the healthcare industry, that people develop a certain type of skepticism. Yeah, I, I think it's important to kind of refocus people's, like if you're gonna have a problem with, you know, the sort of big pharma apparatus, have a problem with the fact that they have withhold, withheld these interventions from lower income countries or have tried to jack prices up on them, not in the actual, you know, purveying of these interventions. Like, you know, out of all the out of all the, the sort of biologically active products and chemicals that, that drug companies put out, vaccines are one of the very few. You know, not very few, but one of the few things that work extremely well and are among you know the by far the safest interventions that we have. Um, number two, the data that's coming out that's being published in high impact reputable medical journals. This is not uh, information that's being put out by drug companies. This is being put out by non-conflict of interest having academic institutions that are studying these things that don't have any vested interest one way or another that are putting the information out that's out there now. So it's not that you would necessarily be expected to trust, you know, the, the people that stand to gain um, in extremely powerful uh, uh, positions within the pharmaceutical industry, but it's actually uh, members of the academic scientific community that are putting out the information that we have now. That's an important distinction to, to draw when you're communicating these things. One of the things that I find interesting is that while some of the regular people may need some handholding, um, others don't, like financial, financial journalists don't seem to need that. Can you speak to that, Julia? Yeah, so I think you're alluding to this piece I wrote about um, my frustrations with seeing that the left press, you know, aka these outlets like Jacobin or Current Affairs, they're not covering COVID anymore. And this is, to be clear, a mass death event like nothing we've seen in this century. It's killing disabled people. It's killing vaccinated people. It's a mass death event. And it's something that every single leftist outlet should be on the front lines of 
pushing back on the murderous non-response of the Biden administration. They're not doing that. They're not saying shit. And their silence is very, very loud. That's my cat. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, in terms of where I found good reporting, I actually sort of drew this contrast in the wake of that awful New Republic piece where this author basically, you know, tried to... Um, both sides along COVID and say, you know, but like maybe it's all in people's heads, which again, this is millions and millions of people. And we're talking about 4 million people out of the workforce in the US alone, which the Brookings Institute is upset about. So like, we know these people are not like faking to lose their jobs and lose their houses. Like it's a real disease. Um, I was looking for good coverage of long COVID. And one thing that I, I found very mysterious was that for months, I found myself sharing links from outlets I don't usually read. So like Financial Times, Forbes, Fortune, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, but like the business section, CNBC, it's all of these business outlets were talking uh, about COVID. So in my article, I delved into essentially, you know, the reason these people are on the front lines of reporting about long COVID is they're worried about losing money. They're worried about the long-term effects on the workforce and they can see what's coming. And they are not buying into this Biden administration bullshit that it's not going to be a big deal because their job is to figure out what's going to happen to the economy. And it's very disturbing to me that these people have the foresight to sort of see this in the numbers. And you'll also see actuaries um, producing a lot of good data about you know, the excess deaths that are attributable to COVID. Um, and meanwhile, the left is just, it's nowhere to be found. It's back to normal, back to brunch. And I, I do think to a great degree, that's essentially just denial. I mean, people, I, I went through it myself. I, I got vaccinated. I went back to normal. I took my mask off. I was like, this problem is solved. <laughs> and then, you know, Omicron hit 200,000 people died in eight weeks and 40% of them were vaccinated. Well, Joe fucking Biden told us that it was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That wasn't true. The vaccine is losing efficacy because we're allowing unchecked spread and unchecked spread leads to infinite opportunities for this virus to mutate and become more vaccine resistant. That doesn't mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. It's important to get vaccinated, but not communicating the ways in which the vaccine is not keeping up with this really fast mutation that's happening is creating anti-vaxxers because by the way, we can talk all day about being nice to anti-vaxxers and all this stuff, but we're also gaslighting them. I look on Twitter and I see people saying over and over again, well, the vaccines were never, they were never expected to prevent infection. Well, Rochelle Walensky went on TV in March 2021 right. and said vaccinated people will not spread COVID. And you can Google that and you can, and you can see it. So lying to people is not effective. We need to be honest with people. And the honest truth is when we first got vaccinated, the vaccines were more effective than they are now. And the reason they're getting less effective is that unchecked spread leads to mutation, leads to variants, and leads to vaccine resistance. Not talking about that is lying to the public. Is there something to be said, Julia, about um, a certain aspect of the left that is not based in what the working class looks like today, right? So people that work in gig jobs that are doing Uber rides and food delivery service and you know the, the service industry you know so if you work from home you probably feel a lot safer than the cat people, that's still driving yeah, people who are working class are on the front lines of this and people who are working class people who are on the front lines are dying they're dying at much higher rates they're becoming disabled at much higher rates than people who are working from home 
And, you know, it's sort of a, it's an unfair question to put to people like, oh, well, you know, I don't know if workers really care about this because they're just trying to, you know, make their money. Yeah, that's true of people who work in big oil. It's true of it's true when people need to struggle every day to have their needs met. They're not always going to um, be concerned with things that are long term and major issues that require years and years of organizing. Like they just want to go to work and make their money. And I get that. That makes sense. But we also need to be pushing back with communications about what can be done. One of the things that can be done is that every workplace needs to have high quality ventilation. I'm talking about less than 800 parts per million CO2. That should be in every workplace, just like we have clean water, just like we have clean food. You're entitled to clean air. You're entitled to that. And I'm not your enemy wanting you to go to work and not get sick. I'm your friend. I'm your ally. I want you to have that right. And I want you to be able to sue your motherfucking boss if they get you sick over and over again and disable you. Right. Julia said, I'm allowed to sue. <laughs> <laughs> Julia said, uh, but, but seriously, if I remember reading so many think pieces in even local publications in the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm from um, about the devastating effects that certain communities were having, uh, how it was hitting the Latin community and the uh, Mission mm -hmm. District of San Francisco, where you have multi-generational families um, and people with, you know, all kinds of uh, pre-existing uh, health conditions. Those pieces are gone. We no longer talk about uh, this this pandemic and how it is affecting the real working class. Um, right. There is kind of a back to brunch, back to travel um, mm -hmm. mentality with a lot of people. Um, I'm not going to lie. I flew to New York for the live show that we did with no mask on. I, I totally forgot it. Um, yeah, it's a little different here where I live. I live pretty secluded from you scary Americans. <laughs> Coughing all over the place with your big green boogers. Uh, see? She wiped her nose. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's it, it. you made a good point, Jason, because it is... We're talking about the most vulnerable people that are predominantly being affected right now. Um, immunocompromised, elderly, and then uh, members of disadvantaged communities. And I think it speaks to, you know, the so-called urgency of normal, back to the normal aesthetic without the mask, no real drive to provide that high quality ventilation, um, no drive to do universal widespread distribution of the 95 stuff to households across America, any of the very basic things that could be done, um, that speaks to the, to the power of, uh, of capitalism. Um, because it's, it's, that's really not convenient. Um, as far if, if you're, if from, from that sort of capitalist mentality, that's not what you're going to be looking at too. And you have to make a strong case for it. And of course, early on, when we were talking about, you know, crushing the curve, staying under the curve, avoiding the overwhelming of American hospitals, et cetera. Now that we're not really in that phase, I mean, I mean, close to a thousand people died in the United States of COVID uh, yesterday, one day, seven wow. day average around like 400 something. But you spread that across the whole country. It's really the most sort of, un, you know, just uh, underprivileged and, and most vulnerable among our society. Um, I guess the United States as a society and this administration has deprioritized that. And I think uh, I appreciate Julia's advocacy on this from a left perspective that it is shameful that the left writ large has not been more vocal 
and sort of unified and outraged about this because to me that does go very hand in hand with left values. And I do find it to be a bit, uh, not a bit, to be very disappointing. And again, somebody I, I've spent many hours every week working with people with this uh, chronic uh, COVID. We call, sometimes people use the term long COVID, chronic COVID, post-acute sequelae, and people that have been members of the workforce their whole lives, never had any problems, never had sick days, healthy, now to the point when they can't even work. They want to work, they can't. Their, their brain feels so foggy, they're so fatigued, they don't have the ability to go to work. And the fact, as you pointed out, that the actual financial powers that be are starting to take notice of this and get concerned is very, very telling. Hmm. What can you so, tell us? Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, actually. The question I want to ask is that what exactly is allowing the politicization to continue particularly on the right where they're still delegitimizing the attempts to to try to get this under control to the point where Biden is basically saying COVID is over. I literally see, I saw a video of him literally come out and say, well, listen, COVID is over. And everything well, he, is he's, I mean, he just said that he's ending the pandemic emergency, which is going to throw millions of people off of Medicaid. And it's not just coming from the right wing. That's the thing is that I think Biden's gotten away with a lot more than Trump could get away with. He is overseeing over 700,000 deaths with very little pushback. You know, when 100,000 people had died in the U.S. in the New York Times, the front page was 100,000 people dead in incalculable loss. And it listed all of their names. When Biden got into office, he did this, you know, uh, crocodile tear ceremony at the National Mall about how sad he was that 400,000 people died and they were never honored by Trump. Now he's killed almost twice that many people. And is he talking about it? Not only is he not talking about it, the other day at his uh, press conference, he said he forgets about it. He said, he said, you know, over a million people have died. And and sometimes, you know, it's just so many people and, and I just forget about it because I don't think about it anymore. He said the words, I don't think about it anymore. And that wasn't front page news. And so I think it's a combination between this administration, they went all in on one strategy. Their one strategy was we give people the vaccine, we're done, baby. We're not doing anything else. No more checks, you're going back to the office, we don't care. And then when that strategy did not work and hundreds of people continue to die daily, they just doubled down. and. The, and the media did not hold them accountable. The media has just continued to move the, the goalposts of normal so that when we first were talking about going back to the office and going back to normal, it was like, if you're vaccinated, you're going to be fine. You're not going to die. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. And now it's like, yeah, you might get a disabling illness. You're going to get this thing twice, maybe three times a year. Your kids are going to get it every year. And uh, oh, by the way, 500 people are just going to die every day forever. But that's cool now, right? Okay, get back in the office. I mean, None of this is okay. And it's really, to, to my mind, it's not surprising the New York Times and Washington Post go along with this kind of bullshit. But the fact that the left isn't there to like create that accountability and push back on it is, it's just a huge missed opportunity, man. I mean, like we should be on the front lines of this. We should be the ones that are defending disabled people, not getting into fights with disabled people. I mean, come on, this is a marginalized group that's getting murdered by the state. And uh oh. Oh no, deep state. Oh, she got she. You know why? Oh, she deep wanted, state cut her off. She she wanted to uh, get in a fight with a disabled person. That's why. Oh. <laughs> That's what did it. That's what did it. She's over there, you know, pushing people in wheelchairs the wrong way. It's like, hey. Boldly. Um. 
I have some very exciting news, if you don't mind. Go for it. Sure. Um, we thankfully uh, we have the funding and our clinical trial, which is going to be a multi-centered, double-blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trial um, for a combination of two medications that we're going to use to try to treat people that have um, post-acute uh, sequelae. Um, so people, long COVID, whatever you want to call it, um, who have not been able to get better. There have been different treatments people have been trying. Um, we had a case series that was recently accepted for publication into a major journal. We finally um, got our stuff together. Uh, it's been a challenge. And we've got some really uh, reputable uh, institutions that are going to be trial sites. Uh, we've been working with FDA to make sure um, they are going to get what they need. And we'll see how the clinical trial goes. And uh, if things go well, we may have a treatment on the horizon. So that's very exciting. And uh, my group is, has been involved in this research now going back a couple of years. And I'm really, uh, really excited about this milestone of finally getting our, getting our clinical trial off the ground. That is fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, I have a question about one of the symptoms. So it sounds like uh, Joe Biden has some brain fog. He probably has it not due to COVID, though. Come on, man. Can you, can you tell us about that as a symptom? Because I feel like a lot of particularly young people are suffering from it right now. Absolutely. I mean myself. Uh, I mean myself. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so, yeah, brain fog is, is a tough one. And there are a few different theories about why this happens. There's a theory that involves inf neuroinflammation, so inflammation of the brain. There's a theory that involves the potential residual presence of viral proteins within the circulation within the brain that causes mm -hmm. issues with the perfusion and delivery of oxygen to tissue within the brain. So there's there, there's different theories behind why this happens. And um, it's a challenge because when you have brain fog and you are at you're either at work, you're trying to you know, carry out executive tasks, you're trying to complete complex tasks, whether at home or the workplace, it can be extremely debilitating. Brain fog is something that's been described historically in conditions like ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, but also as a, sometimes as an aura symptom of migraine. And it can be an extremely uh, debilitating symptom. And sometimes people hear it and they kind of rule their own brain fog, what that's supposed to mean. But it's a, people who've experienced it, it's a very consistent, very well-described symptom. And in my experience in treating this, uh, people with this symptom in particular, and we, we've been doing some pretty advanced diagnostic workups and ordering all kinds of different laboratory panels. And the most consistent thing that I see in people who report brain fog is they have markers that indicate a problem with their microscopic blood vessels. So the real tiny little perfusing blood vessels that give basically oxygen blood flow to the tissue in the brain um, are being hyperactivated. The walls of those blood vessels are getting injured by the virus ostensibly, and that's causing things like platelets and clotting factors to become hyperactivated. And pretty early on in the pandemic, when they looked at people who had originally survived viral infection and then later died, but had had these symptoms like brain fog, and sort of these neurological symptoms, and they did autopsies, they basically found that the blood vessels in the core, the cerebral cortex, basically, which is responsible for your thinking, um, basically the circulation is all gummed up with platelets. And so um, that has been sort of the leading theory uh, behind why people experience this. The question is going to be now, 
is there going to be any safe, effective pharmacological therapy to undo this? And that's going to be the real challenge. Hmm. I've heard, I've uh, checked out some of Julia's reporting and her interview on the committee, which was excellent. Um, can you describe some more of the, some more about the symptoms, the clotting, the brain fog, all of this sort of thing? Yeah, oh, sorry, was that question for me or for Julia? That was for Julia. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I think the doctor can probably speak to that better than I, I can, but I will just say that um, I think one of the main misconceptions about long COVID is that there are no biomarkers, there's no um, sort of physical reality to this disease, and it's just not true. I mean, one thing to keep in mind is that when a disease is new, it can be hard to diagnose. There were decades where MS was considered to be all in people's heads because they just didn't have MRIs yet. They didn't have the technology to be able to establish what was going on. Um, but for a lot of people who have long COVID, like Dr. Eric was talking about, there are um, physical changes that we can observe, including uh, a lot of people with long COVID have what's called viral persistence. That means the virus is persisting in your body. It has not cleared from your body. A lot of other viruses can do this, like if you have um, HPV, if you have HIV, um, there are a lot of viruses that you can get infected with and then stay in your body over the long term and can have other effects down the road. Um, there's also endothelial damage, which is, you know, the lining of your of your blood vessels. And again, that's not something you would necessarily know has happened to you, that the lining of your blood vessels is damaged. Mm -hmm. um, I have a friend with long COVID and she got this um, treatment like in Germany um, where they looked at the, the microclotting and her blood, it's like glue, you know, it's tacky. It's full of all of these microclots. And, you know, you have people, including on the left, writing these, um, you know, questioning reports. Well, is this even real? I mean, her blood is like glue. What do you want me to tell you? I mean, that's a physical, very obviously not psychological. And maybe, you know, part part of the reason I'm concerned about it is is knowing people that have it and and really seeing that physical reality, you know, it's it's hard to see her because she's so sick all the time. Um, and the way that that endothelial damage and microclotting can manifest is severe exhaustion because your organs are not getting blood flow. So that's why you get the, the fainting when you stand up. That's why you get organs shutting down. That's why you get what's called capillary rarefication, which is when your little teeny you know, capillaries that come out from your veins just sort of die because they, the blood can't flow into them. Um, so, you know, we're talking about a real and a serious disease with underlying organic uh, physiological mechanisms. And we're talking about it like people are crazy. And that's just, you know, the only reason they're getting away with this is that uh, there's just a, a dedicated um, narrative in the press that they just do not want people worried about this. Yeah. So interesting you brought up MS because one of the largest, one of the most major scientific breakthroughs over the past couple of years is that MS multiple sclerosis has been now causally linked to the Epstein-Barr virus. The chronic subsequent effects of the Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, if people aren't familiar with it, is the causative virus that causes mono uh, in particular um, and can be linked to a certain type of, uh, of lymphoma. Uh, but yeah, MS has actually been causally linked to, to, uh, to Epstein-Barr virus. So this idea where people are being skeptical or cynical that a virus can cause long-term subsequent serious neuromuscular or sort of uh, chronic inflammatory issues, there's really no basis for that skepticism because all kinds of viruses have been shown to do that. Um, as far as the theory that there's a persistence of active viral infection, 
it's very possible and, and and in some people that may be going on the trouble with that is most of the research that's showing that is using things like immunohistochemistry or in some cases rna scope which will detect the presence of viral proteins but there's not really been what we call whole genome sequencing which you really need in order to know if you have fully intact replicating virus uh, what some of my colleagues have been doing, which is pretty fascinating, is they've been using these very cutting-edge techniques called proteomics, where they look inside of your immune cells. Uh, your immune cells, after you get infected with a virus, this certain type of immune cell called the monocyte, which is almost like a reconnaissance. It goes, it picks up, gobbles up, or eats uh, in, invading pathogens, and then brings them to your immune system to be processed and recognized. And ordinarily, these things will last for about a week, maybe a few days, maybe a couple of weeks of the longest, and then they go and they die off. And what happens in people with long COVID is that these things become basically like zombies. And instead of committing what we call apoptosis, which is cell suicide, where these things normally die off in about a week or two, you'll find them six months, eight months, a year, year and a half in some cases, where we look and you still have these zombie monocytes cruising around your immune system, expressing those viral proteins and basically showing them to your blood vessels. And what happens is these things get sticky, these immune cells get sticky and they adhere to the inner lining of your little microscopic blood vessels and they cause all kinds of activation and cytokines. And that's what seems to be activating these clotting factors that are causing the buildup of platelets and clots. And um, that's, I think, really the most cohesive understanding of, of what is causing the syndrome where we're putting these different theories together. The trouble now is you've got all these long, these long COVID clinics popping up all over the country. Some of them are at like major academic centers. Some of them just kind of sprout out around. And, and unfortunately, and people with chronic illness have been going through this for years um, where you're kind of stuck between like a medical mainstream that doesn't really acknowledge that your condition is real and anything that people are trying to do that's maybe a little bit experimental or uh, whatnot and, and basically just laughing it off as quackery. But then there are genuine sort of like quacks out there who are offering completely ridiculous, unproven, and in some cases dangerous mm -hmm. treatments to people without any evidence of benefit and people are getting harmed. And um, that's the reason why doing clinical trials is so important. And if you're talking about leftist value, you should care about that as well, because you're talking about disabled people that are just trying to fight for their lives and get their lives back. There's going to be a lot of sort of opportunistic players out there looking to just sort of relieve people of what's in their pockets, offering mm -hmm. them nonsense. At the same time, people are being gaslit and told that this is all in their heads and just kind of go home and do some exercise and you're going to be mm -hmm. fine and, and whatnot. And to me, that's that's sort of an unfortunate little uh, tightrope these, these, these unfortunate people are, are, are having to walk. And um, I do think that's something that, uh, that we on the left should care about a lot, whether you're interested in science or not. One of the things so, I wanted to talk one of the things I wanted to talk about, because the, the, the conflict information is really kind of scary in terms of what you're hearing. The Washington Post had an opinion editorial last week where the title was basically talking about over over counting in terms of COVID deaths. And they were literally alleging that there were too many people were being blamed, that too many people were being ascribed to death because of COVID. And their deaths were actually being caused by other 
for other reasons, but they were mm-hmm. incorrectly being uh, being diagnosed as being the cause, being COVID. Are you familiar with that with that article? Can, yeah. you, can I talk my shit about that article? Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I, I have a few things I want to say too, but if you want uh, to okay. jump in, go ahead. Uh, first of all, that article was very, very uh, well debunked by Mehdi Hassan on his show the next night, and then even today, the Washington Post ran another article that was like, "Our bad, sorry, no, they're not being overcounted." But the woman who wrote that article, her name is Dr. Theana Wen, and she is, how do I explain her? She's just a huckster for COVID is no big deal. I mean, this woman has been discredited on multiple things that she said over and over and over again. One of the things she said live on air, on TV, on cable news, she said, well, I, you know, I don't have my kids wear masks because my, my son got speech delayed by wearing a mask. Now, I want to be really clear with you that there's no scientific evidence that exists that kids can be speech delayed by masks. She may have anecdotally thought that she observed this, but that's not how we do science around here. And after that interview, the American Pediatrics Association did an entire thread just subtweeting her that was like, masks do not cause speech delays. Blind kids don't have speech delays. This is not a thing, one. And, you know, Side note, I seriously doubt she was wearing a mask in her house with her like two-year-old son all the time. I don't think that happened. So no. Um, but that's just one of the times that she's been discredited. I also want to go specifically to this narrative of, oh, well, the, are, they, are they dying of COVID or with COVID? This was a Trump narrative. You know, this was a Republican narrative from day one. And it's really scary seeing how many people on the left just start swallowing this bullshit when it's our side of the aisle that's saying, oh, you know what? Maybe they're just dying with COVID. What's happening is that there's a very, very, very high excess death rate, which is easy to see however you count the COVID deaths. And it started when COVID started. And it just logically doesn't make any sense to be talking about, um, you know, maybe these deaths are from some other mysterious something else. They're not, they're from COVID. And some of the people who die of COVID in the hospital, it's true, they were there for other reasons and they got infected with COVID. Well, guess what? I think that's a human rights violation. I think that there should be adequate protection in a hospital that if you or your loved one or your kid or your mom or your dad goes to the hospital and has surgery for cancer, you don't come out with a disease that kills you. I mean, come on, the left isn't talking about this. Right now, I'm seeing it every day. People posting, you know, oh, my brother went in for this surgery and now he has COVID. Are you serious? From the healthcare setting? I mean, this is something we have to handle. Yeah. Um, so interestingly, Leona Wen actually had a very brief stint as the head of Planned Parenthood uh, some years ago. And uh, she was pretty quickly ousted. Um, and one of her main policy objectives when she was heading up Planned Parenthood is she really wanted to kind of like deprioritize abortion care and make it more like, oh, this is more just like women's health, generalized women's health. And we can see how well the deprioritization of abortion care has turned out. So that's the one thing to know. Another interesting thing about that op-ed in the Washington Post is that her evidence that deaths were being overcounted and it really people are dying with it instead of from it. Oh, I talked to two ID doctors at George Washington University Hospital, and this is what they said. Again, that's anecdotes aren't evidence. One, number two, I mean, no disrespect to infectious disease doctors. They've been complete, 100% vital and crucially important uh, over the past couple of years and always. 
Uh, research has shown that patients do better when there's infectious disease specialists involved in the care in the hospital, as a matter of fact. But infectious disease doctors don't fill out death certificates, as far as I know. Uh, it, it, when you get it, I actually fill out death certificates. I'm a hospitalist. I'm your prime. I'm your attending of record when you're in the hospital. I actually fill out death certificates. It's very unusual for hospitalized people to go under the actual primary service of an infectious disease doctor. So they're not the ones filling out the death certificates. So I don't even know who she talked to or why they would have said that. I do fill out death certificates, and what I can tell you is that when you fill out a death certificate, you indicate what somebody died from, and you indicate what they died with, and these things are trapped, and so it's just it, it's just patently untrue. People that specialize in excess deaths have also debunked this. Now, a more complex topic, are we overcounting COVID hospitalizations, and we might actually be doing that because the way that we go about counting uh, and tracking COVID hospitalizations is a little bit more complex. There was a study published in open forums and in infectious diseases where they try to apply more rigorous criteria, criteria how, for how they defined a COVID hospitalization in the USC uh, LA area. And they found that something like two thirds of the cases actually wouldn't have met criteria for, for COVID hospitalization under those more stringent criteria where people needed oxygen, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, I think we're undercounting hospitalizations of people who got the virus and it caused them to get premature cardiac disease and potentially strokes, myocardial infarctions, people that are ending up hospitalized with those conditions where we aren't able to attribute it to the virus, but it probably is at least some degree causally attributed to having been infected. So I think largely it comes out in the wash. Overall, no, I don't think we are overcounting this. I don't think we are falsely en masse attributing uh, people who just incidentally tested positive, but, you know, oh, they came in because they got hit by a car or whatever else, and they're sort of being falsely counted, and that's inflating the numbers. I don't think there's any good evidence to support it. I haven't heard any compelling argument that makes me think that's a big problem. Well, this, this goes to my point. How exactly are we expected to have citizens who are lay people? who have no expertise in science, feel any kind of security in what they're being told when a paper of record like the Washington Post is publishing garbage like this and expected yep. to be able to actually they see, see through it. They shouldn't. There you go. They shouldn't. I mean, that's, that's as people on the left, I mean, look, I was 15 when the Iraq war happened, right? And I remember my parents were saying, yeah, this is a war for oil. But you know what? Every single uh, major media outlet was saying no it was because saddam hussein maybe did 9 11 and also they have wmds and you were a conspiracy theorist and you were crazy if you didn't believe that uh it's just the same thing i mean this is the narrative from the biden administration and it's just so funny to me to see so many people on the left trying to you know poke holes in this idea that COVID is bad for you because you're just doing favors to joe biden the only person who wants you to think COVID is no big deal is joe biden the democrats the republicans People who are in power and don't want to do anything about workers dying. Workers are dying. Workers are getting disabled. And as people on the left, no, you shouldn't trust what's coming from the White House. No, you shouldn't trust what's coming from major media outlets that are telling you, you know what? Just go get COVID twice a year. It's going to be fine. No, people are getting disabled by this thing daily. So no, you should not listen to that. Yeah, I, I think your broad, I think your broader question, Pascal, is that like, how are we supposed to have reputable, uh, a reputable and effective apparatus of of putting out scientific and public health recommendations that people are supposed to listen to, um, 
how do we sort of justify that? And I don't have a good answer for that. And I think that is a big problem because this is not going to be the last pandemic that we have. Um, we might have another coronavirus pandemic. We might have another influenza pandemic. I mean, who knows? And there are other public health crises that happen that claim the lives of people that wouldn't have had to have been claimed if things were done correctly. And what I've been pointing out from the very from the very first time I ever went on any podcast to talk about COVID back with uh, with David uh, Griscom and, and Matt Leck and, and Alicia Brooks, um, what I said was when you actually compare different countries and you look at the Global Health Security Index, which is basically a measure of how well different countries are equipped to handle major sort of public health catastrophes. Although the United States scored among the highest overall, they look at all these different measures that a country has. Overall, the United States scored very high, but one of the items that the United States scored very poorly on was the extent to which the general public trusts public institutions, public, whether it's public health communication, just public institutions in general. And I think it's very easy to get mad at sort of the sort of the anti-science aggressors, anti-vaccine community, whatever else. But as Julia has aptly pointed out, a lot of it has come from mainstream, otherwise reputable institutions that we're supposed to be listening to. And I don't really know how that gets fixed, unfortunately. I don't I don't have I don't have an answer to that. It's 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 very concerning. Very. Um, we have a super chat here from on your left. Are there tests for long COVID? How do you differentiate between long COVID and brain fog caused by stress slash burnout? Mm -hmm. Do we have any um, very di very difficult to do um, right now? There are there are not what I would call widely accepted tests that within the general medical community are going to be accepted as here's a test for long COVID. Do you have it or not? There are lots of different diagnostic tests and algorithms that are being put out. Um, I'm very excited that uh, a, an algorithm that my research group is working with is on the verge of actually being FDA approved as a diagnostic modality uh, for, for actually being able to diagnose uh, long COVID in the US and in the EU and Europe um, are uh, this, this particular testing modality received the CEIVD, which basically allows it to be legally marketed as a long COVID test. And it's being run by one of the largest, most reputable labs in the European Union. It's basically uh, equivalent to like LabCorp or Quest in the United States it's called SynLab. And it's basically an array of different cytokines that we look at and they use these uh, artificial intelligence machine learning driven algorithms to basically try to differentiate either health controls, people who have long COVID or potentially other chronic illnesses. So these things are in development. There's no firm answer right now, but the research is very rapidly moving forward. Um, and so, yeah, it's, and, and, you know, and to answer the second part of that question, for me to tell someone, oh, your, your brain fog is just from stress or it's in your head or it's sort of a functional problem, that, that, that's tough to do. I mean, that's really a diagnosis of exclusion once everything else has been uh, sort of ruled out. Um, so, yeah, that's the best I can answer that question. We'll take it. We'll take it. Well, on that note, um, it's getting late. And the doctor and Julia are going to join us in the champagne room. Is that correct? Yeah. 
Yes, okay. definitely. <laughs> I want to see what's going on in the champagne room. I'm so excited, you guys. You just, <laughs> Jason's going to strip for us. Oh, Jason, God. what? This is going to strip for us in the champagne room. I'm not going to, not today. He's going to strip Maybe. emotionally. <laughs> <laughs> That's only for our off-air conversations. Okay. <laughs> but, um, I think we're going to open up the phone lines for the champagne room. Nice. So I'm excited for this. Uh, we're only going to have moving for a little bit because, as you know, we have to save our phone line money for the Valentine's Day show. Oh, that's right. <laughs> we can't blow the entire phone line budget on you guys yelling at us, calling us quacks. We have to save that for you guys yelling about um, weird love lines type questions how about maybe in the maybe in the champagne room jason can do the wednesday adams dance <laughs> pay to see that <laughs> was that on in the champagne room or was that on a private call where i stood on the chair and then did the shakira when i had little shorts on it you didn't believe oh i was wearing gosh. little shorts that and the time you fell off the chair <laughs> Hilarious. That was on camera, right? Julia's yeah, like, were. what the shit? Hey, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't believe in long shorts, Julia. <laughs> I have no short sure. opinion. Don't scare the guests, Jason. Don't scare the guests. <laughs> you, shorts, okay? you people call them hot pants. I call them shorts. Proper clothes for a hot day. Yeah, That's it. We're moving on to the champagne room where we'll be taking your calls. Pascal, are you staying for the call taken in the champagne room? Yeah, man, I'm here, man. I'm part of the team, dude. <laughs> uh, Tucson, are you ready to screen some calls? I'm ready to do it. Oh, man. Dr. Eric, are you ready? are you ready to take some Love Line style calls? We should practice the Love Lines thing in the champagne room. Why not? Um, with Dr. Eric. Yeah, well, you know, but uh, I went on, uh, I actually went on Dr. Drew's podcast last year. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, since then, he has taken a very unfortunate turn. And the type of uh, stuff he's putting out there and the kind of guests he's having on are pretty, uh, pretty insane. But yeah, it's still kind of cool to, to go on there. That is cool. People are talking about the champagne room in the chat. Um, Steve says, I'm a proud munch. And Robert Booth says, what up, Munch, is his new way to say hello. Okay, let's just hop in. Cool. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, on that note, guys, we are out.